Hey Mosaic family, we're so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. Don't forget, our Fall Fest is tonight at 5 p.m. It's going to be a time of fun, fellowship, and fall stuff out in the backyard. We are looking forward to this time of togetherness, so please join us and feel free to invite your friends. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids' ministry for kids' birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age-appropriate. We also have a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here today. All right. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic Church. And so on behalf of our church, we're glad you're here today. If uh, you're not a member here, we're really thankful that you're here to worship Jesus with us, um, as we said in our welcome. Uh, Before I get into the message today, just want to reiterate, uh, our Fall Fest uh, is tonight at 5 p.m. However, there's another feature of the Fall Fest that we didn't plan for, though probably we should from now on. Uh, it's rain. So, um, yeah, welcome to Florida. I don't think we've had, our elders were talking, we haven't had an event this year uh, that we've scheduled in advance where there has not been some chance of rain uh, that could possibly uh, throw us uh, for a loop there. So uh, here's, here's the deal. Uh, currently, it looks like it's going to rain pretty much right through the event. Um, that could change, you know, the wind could blow or something and it could go to Pensacola instead. I don't know, you know, but, um, what we're going to do is after service, we're going to look at the weather one more time and kind of make a determination on what we want to do in terms of the backyard stuff. Um, if it's going to rain, there's just some things about that event we can't pull off. Just being honest. Uh, sorry about that. If that happens, but, um, the, really the goal is to fellowship and be together. And so uh, the reality is we can still eat chili inside and we can still play games inside and we can still hang out and fellowship and have a great time together inside. And so uh, if it does, in fact, rain through five o'clock and, and on into the evening, uh, what our plan will be will be just to alter the event. So it won't be like as fallish maybe because it won't be out back in the backyard with the string lights and all that. But and we can't have a fire inside. Well, I mean, we don't have a fireplace, so we can't have a fire inside. Um, so s'mores might be tough, but uh, we're still going to do our best to have a good time. And so if you want to join us for that and eat chili still and uh, have fun, we'll still do some games, uh, then please join us for that. Like I said, we'll, uh, we'll pr- likely just send out uh, a, a church-wide text. So um, if you've been coming for some amount of time, then your, your phone number is likely in our system. You'll probably get that text. Um, if not, uh, we'll probably post on social media as well, so you can check back there too. Uh, we'll put a post out. So, okay, so that'll be our plan. Uh, it's probably going to rain, so uh, we'll do what we can do. All right. Uh, well, we are beginning a new sermon series today, and it's a little bit out of the norm for us because it is a topical series. Usually uh, at Mosaic, what we do is we preach straight through uh, systematically through entire books of the Bible uh, for the sake of context. Uh, but sometimes it makes sense to teach topically because there are some, you know, some topics that are con- they're comprehensively addressed by the Bible, just not in any singular passage. Uh, and so for the next four weeks, we'll be doing something that we've never done before. Uh, our sermon topics have been sent in and suggested by you. So uh, we had a survey out for about a month that allowed for anyone who attends Mosaic to submit a uh, theological or cultural topic that they had questions about. And now we're using those uh, questions as the topics for these next four weeks of sermons. So the series is called, What Do Christians Think About Blank? And so every week we'll fill in that blank with a new topic, and I'll do my best to uh, address that topic in a way that is helpful from Scripture. And today uh, we're going to be kicking off with a real uh, doctrinal softball, something nice and easy. We'll be discussing uh, the doctrine of hell. So, 
Yeah, just kidding. Uh, hell is not easy to talk about, um, but it is, it is important that we do talk about it. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray and let's ask for God's help that we desperately need, and then we will dive in. Father, God, we uh, thank you, as always, for another day to come together as the body of Christ in order to worship you through singing and prayer and giving and the public reading of your word. Lord, we um, have been through prolonged seasons where we could not do this in the not-so-distant past, and so we don't ever want to forget that and take this for granted. This is a special and important time for us as your word helps us to understand because our togetherness as the church is not negotiable. It's critical to us being who you have called us to be. That said, Lord, while this is a day that we're all hoping for no rain, God, we, we gladly affirm that all that you ordain is right, and we thank you for the reminder of your kind providence in our lives. This is so often not what we expect, though it is always good. And now, God, as we open your word to think through uh, one of its most challenging doctrines, would you please help us? God, from what we read in your word, hell is awful. But your word does bring clarity to it, and it's necessary for us to have uh, a right and clear understanding of it. So I pray that uh, I would do well to expound on it, and that those who are here would re would receive it and allow it to strengthen the resolve of their faith. God, I pray as always that I would say everything that I need to say, that I wouldn't say anything I, I don't need to say, that you would guard me in that way, that your spirit would guide me, and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well let me start off by telling you why I would address the topic of hell head on, other than the fact that someone asked me to. <laughs> Two reasons. Number one is because hell is real. And interestingly, Jesus himself speaks about the reality of hell more than any other person in all of Scripture. Anyone, is there anyone here who, who loves Jesus and, and cares what he has to say? Anybody? Yeah. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we should, right? Um, and so if we want to know the real Jesus, I mean, you can make up a fake Jesus. Some people like to do that. But if we want to know uh, the real Jesus, then hell is something we'll need to be willing to talk about and to consider deeply. Evidently, uh, Jesus considered hell to be a topic worth mentioning frequently. And if you've read through the Gospels for yourself, uh, then you know that. Hopefully by the end of this sermon, it'll make sense to you why that is. So uh, hell is real. Jesus says so. Uh, if you believe Jesus is God, then that should be enough for you. Uh, but if you don't trust, maybe you're not at the point of trusting everything that Jesus has to say yet because you're on the fence, that's okay. Don't worry. I think the Bible, uh, it does give us a decent explanation of the rationale for hell too. We don't have to accept it blindly, so to speak. It explains what it's all about. But the second reason that I would address the topic of hell is because culturally, there's a lot of confusion and disagreement surrounding it. Our, our subculture, so to speak, would be identified as uh, evangelical. And I don't particularly love that term, but it, it is helpful for this discussion. According to a 2021 Pew Research study, 91% uh, of evangelical Christians believe in hell, which is pretty good, right? However, past that point, the beliefs begin to diverge wildly, okay? Uh, only about 50% of evangelicals believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to avoid hell. Uh, so that's problematic. Uh, that statistic alone tells us that there is serious confusion, even within the evangelical camp, so to speak, on the topic of hell when it comes to uh, what it is, who will go there, and why. So uh, I'm going to let that be an outline of sorts for me today, since those matters of confusion seem to be prominent, and because those are actually the things that 
uh, we want to make sure we have clarity on as believers why there's a hell, right? What hell is, why it's so severe, and what we should do with our knowledge of it, okay? And, and before I get to my first point, I just want to quote something that J.I. Packer said about the discussion of hell. He said, it is difficult to talk about hell because it is more awful than we have words for. And I, I really feel the weight of that now as I'm going to try to put words um, to something so serious. And so I hope that you know um, at the start of this sermon that as your pastor, I love you. I love you. That's why I'm talking about hell, because to avoid something so serious would actually be unloving, right? Uh, I've shared this in the past. I think it's always helpful in a discussion like this. There's a famous uh, atheist magician, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, who made this remark about the Christian gospel. He said, and I quote, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. He says, and the claims of the gospel are more important than that. So even a reasonable atheist can appreciate a discussion on hell from a Christian if they're willing to be intellectually honest and see the loving motivation behind it. So just a reminder of my motivation today. And with that, I'd also like to say that um, I am thankful. I, I'm humble. I'm humbled by the fact that you would trust me to speak to you about something that can be so sensitive uh, and frankly, even divisive. Uh, and I hope that as we move through this discussion, you'll see that my goal today uh, is not to scare or manipulate you, uh, but to graciously inform you and hopefully by the end, encourage you. Okay? All right. Well, uh, as I was beginning to think through the topic of hell, the first thought that occurred to me was, man, last week's sermon on the love of God feels like such a stark contrast to this week's sermon on the judgment of God. But, you know, after about 30 seconds of rolling that thought around, I realized how wrong it is. Um, the Apostle John makes a really foundational statement about the character of God when he says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. Right? And this doesn't mean that love is the only attribute of God. There are many attributes in Scripture that describe God. But love is a reigning characteristic in the person of God. Every other characteristic is attached to and, and influenced by his love, even his righteous judgment. That said, the passage I'd like to use to frame the rest of what I'll say is, is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 31. For context, this passage uh, is the author of Hebrews explaining what, a life, uh, what the life of a Christian should look like in light of the loving sacrifice of Jesus. And honestly, it could really, uh, if you were to splice the two together, it's like it could really um, be application for Romans 8. It could like just flow right out of Romans 8 from last week, since Romans 8 is essentially the same, and then it's telling us about what Christ has done for us. So let's, let's read this passage. I think you'll see what I'm saying here, I hope. Hebrews 10, let's begin in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God... Okay, stop there. In other words, he's saying... Since Jesus has done it all for us, okay? Since Jesus has done it all, since he has loved us by living the perfect life that we never could have, dying the death we deserved to atone for our sin on the cross and rising again to offer us reconciliation and eternal life with God, verse 22. 
Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, pause again really quick. He's saying, in light of the gospel, let's live like Christians. Okay, it's pretty simple. In light of the gospel, let's put all of our faith and hope in Christ. Let's live a life that characterizes the promise of no condemnation by striving to allow the Holy Spirit's leading in our sanctification putting sin to death, and living with the new holy priorities of God's kingdom. Let's make the gospel of Jesus Christ the theme of our whole life. Okay, And with that, let's be the church together. Let's not neglect to worship together and fellowship together and live on mission together because we believe that Jesus is coming back. And we want to be living as we've been called to live for the gospel when he gets here. Are you following this logic? It's it's about to take a turn. So you need to be tracking with this or it might catch you off guard. Okay, verse 26. For, that is because of all that, for if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, maybe after hearing that, you feel a little bit like that notorious gif of the baby, you know, like who's having a good time and then all of a sudden he's like terrified, you know, like, oh, you know, like, like that's kind of like the transition from verse 25 to verse 26. And it can do that to you if you're not quite following the logic that the author is, is giving here. So let me tell you my first point today, which seeks to answer the question of why there is a hell. And I think you'll understand Uh, why the author of Hebrews makes this hard right turn uh, into the topic of hell in this passage. Here's the first point. The, The judgment of hell is necessitated by the love and mercy of God. You didn't hear that wrong. The judgment of hell is necessitated by the love and mercy of God. Maybe that sounds strange to you, but stay with me as I explain. As Christians, most of us know the truth from Romans 3, that the wages of sin is death, right? That goes all the way back to Genesis, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if they ate from it, they would surely die, okay? And when they ate from it, and they did not instantly uh, die physically, we realized that the death that God was speaking about uh, was even worse than physical death, right? He was talking about spiritual death, which in short is separation from the life-giving relationship with him, okay? That's what human sin does. We talk about this a lot here. Um, It severs the relationship between God and man, and it leads uh, to all of the sad relational brokenness that we see in the world around us. Because when our source of life in God is cut off vertically, it inevitably begins to affect human relationships horizontally too. Like They can't work. Human relationships can't work in the way that God designed them to healthily and joyfully as he intended. But from Genesis 3 
where the fall happens, and forward, what we find out about God is that he has a plan. Even though his image bearers, human beings, have broken relationship with him, with their sin of prideful disobedience, in his love for them, God has preemptively come up with a way to save them from themselves. That is, to save us from ourselves. The way that he plans to do that is through Jesus. You're not surprised, okay? Now, I don't have time to do the lengthy task of showing you this in the Old Testament today, but just trust me when I say this. The gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is not only a New Testament concept, okay? God began communicating with his people in Genesis that salvation would be possible through faith, and specifically faith in a sacrifice that would cover over the sin of humanity, making it possible for them to be restored to God by faith. Okay? That principle is actually shot through the Old Testament. The only new information, so to speak, in the New Testament is that Jesus, the Son of God himself, is the sacrifice who would also become the Savior of sinful men. That's the new part. Okay? That's the new part. And so here's why this is relevant to the discussion of hell. God's message to humanity has never changed. God's message has never changed. God has always been saying to mankind from the beginning, I love you. Come to me. I am for you. You can trust me. Don't give yourself to false gods. They will hurt you. They will separate you from me. They will make your life unhappy and unfulfilled and ultimately lead you to death. You don't have to run from me. I will give you everything that you could possibly need, including eternal life. Stay near me. Place your faith and your hope in me. And this is still what God is saying through Scripture today. Okay. The fifth to last verse in the whole Bible, in Revelation 22, 17, says, The Spirit, that is God, and the Bride, that is the church, say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is, come to God. He will forgive your sin and give you life if you will trust in Jesus because Jesus has paid it all for your sin. There's no other requirement left undone. All you have to do is come and drink the water of life that Christ has to offer. And so here's why I say that the judgment of hell is necessitated by the love and mercy of God. It's because God has done nothing except love humanity from the beginning all the way to the end. And even when we blew it with our sin, God extended mercy to us in the gospel. Right? So even though we messed everything up, By rejecting God, like a gracious father, he said, that's okay. I'll come down into your mess and I'll take all of the expense onto myself to clean up what you have done. And all you have to do is listen to me and trust me and everything will be okay. And so because God has been so kind and so loving and so merciful. He does not force or coerce anyone. He just keeps his offer open to anyone who will take him up on it. This is the message of the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And the words of Jesus, who articulated this better than anyone else could have, for God so loved the world... And he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you see that hell is necessitated by the love and mercy of God? Speaking to why God has waited 2,000 years to wrap this whole thing up and why he hasn't sent Jesus back already, the apostle Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire is not primarily to punish His greatest desire is to save. But we see, even in John 3.16, that the reality of hell is written in. It's written in. The reality of condemnation and the reality of perishing apart from God's love, God leaves this open as an option For anyone who ultimately says, I don't want God. I don't want God. If you want a life without God, God will give you what you want. Going back to our text, this is what The hard transition Hebrews 10 is all about. The gospel forms an eternal fork in the road, so to speak. On one side, there is joyful, this joyful prospect of trusting Jesus and living for God. But there's also another way. The scary prospect of rejecting Jesus and deciding that you you don't want to live for God. This is why hell is exists because some will do exactly that and so the love of God and the mercy of God necessitate a place like hell where the love and mercy of God are not manifested because in God's design every soul of every person is made for eternity And if anyone rejects the love and mercy of God, there must be an eternal destination for them. To quote J.I. Packer again, he says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All will receive what they actually choose either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. And thus hell will be a place with no joy and only a sense that you have missed the greatest thing in the world. What an incredibly sad thought that is. Tim Keller, along the same lines, he defines hell really concisely. And so now that you understand why there must be a place like hell, Keller says... Hell is a freely chosen identity in anything other than God that goes on forever. I think that's a really good way to define it. However, it must be qualified because until this point, we've, we've only been hitting on really the necessity of hell, not really the nature of hell or what hell is like. Um, and so let's press into that as much as the scripture will allow. Jesus mentions hell 13 times In the Gospels, which is pretty significant. Some have mistakenly said uh, that Jesus refers to hell more than he does to heaven. And while that's not true, uh, the amount that Jesus speaks about hell is enough to warrant some speculation and and comparison between the two things. And so um, the majority of Jesus' references to hell is this Greek word, Gehenna. And rather than read all the citations to you, 13 verses would take some time to read, I'll just tell you, uh, you can do that in your own concordance if you want to, but I'll just tell you um, that the consensus is that Gehenna, from Jesus' perspective, is that it is a terrible place of unending fire and suffering and darkness. Uh, A few times he describes it as a place where the worm does not die 
and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And um, gnashing of teeth is a first century Jewish expression that implies the grinding of one's teeth in agony. So hell is severe. This is why Hebrews 10 says that the decision to reject the gospel and face the judgment of God will be a fearful thing. In Matthew 25, Jesus, uh, as he's explaining the day of judgment, he also explicitly describes hell as eternal. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some have speculated that perhaps hell is not an eternal punishment, but is actually annihilation, uh, where the souls of unrepentant sinners are destroyed But this does not seem to be what Jesus is saying. You can read it for yourself. But rather, um, as we've already mentioned, that because every soul is made by God for eternity, uh, just as spiritual life will be eternal, so will spiritual death be eternal. A terrifying affirmation of the eternal state of hell is found in Revelation 14, where it says, uh, of all who ultimately turned away from and rebelled against God, it says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast. So um, as difficult a reality as this is to process, hell will be a freely chosen identity and anything other than God going on forever. But it will not be a time in which those who reject the love and mercy of God are happy or in which they are content. Okay. It will be an eternity of severe punishment for their sin that they refuse to have forgiven and covered by Jesus. One theologian aptly said that this life is simultaneously as close to hell as Christians will ever get, and it's also as close to heaven as those who reject Christ will ever get. And I think that's helpful because it identifies why hell must be a place of such torment. Hell is a place where God's judgment is executed, yes, but his judgment will largely be executed by the removal of all things enjoyable and good that flow from his loving kindness. Years ago, there was a terrible movie that came out, which I I have not seen, uh, called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. It's a story of one man's life of debauchery and sexual promiscuity, which I I obviously do not commend to you. I only reference it in order to comment on its title, which is a mockery of one of the most serious spiritual realities we know of, and to say, as do the scriptures, that God will not be mocked, and that there will indeed not be beer in hell because there will be nothing enjoyable in hell and there will be nothing mockable in hell in the real eternal hell. It will be miserable and the only alcoholic beverages in eternity from what I've seen, if there are any, will be enjoyed in holy, responsible, celebratory feasting at the wedding supper of the Lamb where sinners who are saved by grace drink new wine as an eternal remembrance of the incredible sacrificial love of God. All that to say, my second point this morning is that the severity and the eternality of hell is commensurate to the arrogance of rejecting the kindness of the infinitely glorious God. Some have remarked, but why would God punish the sin of one lifetime for an eternity. My answer to that is that while sin may be a finite thought or action, it is a manifestation of rebellion against an eternal God. Hell is so severe because God is the only source of good. If he removes all of his good, then there is nothing left which could possibly be enjoyed, and thus only suffering and agony are left as the just punishment. And hell will last for eternity because unrepentant sin is the rebellious rejection of the eternal king and his never-ending kingdom of love, 
peace, and justice. And so I say that these aspects of hell, its severity and its eternality, they are commensurate. That is, they are fair. And they are in proportion to the arrogance of turning away from a kind and infinitely glorious God who generously offers a way of escape. As I'll just say it, I'll just say it this way. There will be no one in hell who does not deserve to be there. There'll be no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. There will be no one in hell who loves and trusts God. The only people who will find themselves in hell will be Satan, the demons, and those who arrogantly followed their demonic lead to worship themselves instead of God. That's who will be in hell. And so it's at this point that I'll briefly comment before we close on a question that some undoubtedly uh, have. In a sermon about hell, I can, I can just like feel the, the pressure of this natural question. The question is, but what about the innocent guy out there who never had a chance to hear the gospel? Right? To which I'll simply say a couple things. Number one, you should know this if you've been here for a while. Um, there are no innocent guys out there who haven't heard the gospel because there are no innocent guys out there at all. Okay? The Bible is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the truth is, apart from Christ, hell is what we all deserve. Not hearing the gospel does not make someone innocent. If not hearing the gospel made someone innocent, then the best thing we could do would be to not take the gospel to them. But I think the question that most people have is, is someone who has not had the opportunity to hear the explicit gospel still culpable for their sin? This is an extremely tough question to answer without some comment on that. And so here's my best answer. Jesus is clear, okay? No one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. So there is no alternate way of salvation apart from the forgiveness of sin and Jesus alone. That said... There are some striking and reputable reports from missionaries around the world who have said, particularly in closed Islamic countries, that Muslims are having dreams about Jesus and coming to faith in him as a result. And we do see some biblical precedent for these kinds of dreams. We see in Scripture that God does not give dreams for things that are unrelated to his mission. But he does on occasion give dreams and visions to people for the sake of their trusting in him. Okay, Take the Apostle Paul as an example, if you will. So this is by far the exception. This is not the rule. God's ordinary way of saving sinful people is through the proclamation of the gospel through his disciples. However, I say this to say that God is both sovereign over salvation and incredibly gracious. And so I think Abraham said it best in Genesis 18 when he inquired of God about the judgment of Sodom. He said, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so church, we need not be worried about God sending people to hell who don't deserve and choose to be there. We don't need to worry about that. Okay? The judge of all the earth 
is more loving and merciful than we can possibly fathom. He alone knows the thoughts, motives, and intentions of every single human heart, and he will do whatever he needs to do to save his people, and he will do also what is just. If you still have questions, join the club. But there is no question about the merciful character of our God who is mighty to save and who loves to save sinners by graciously drawing them to himself. And so I'll close with this final point. The knowledge of hell prior to death is God's gracious plea with sinful men not to go there. I cannot tell you with 100% certainty what God is doing about the countless souls that are coming to stand before him every single day without ever having an opportunity to hear of his grace in the gospel. From scripture, please hear me on this. From scripture, all we can deduce is that apart from Christ, they would have to be entering into an eternity separated from him in hell. And so my appeal to you is to let the judge of all the earth deal with the things that only he is qualified to deal with and for you to deal with the things that are in your finite human scope of responsibility. And so here's what that would look like. If you're a believer already, here's what this means. God has given you and given me a mission to join him in seeking and saving the lost. We have a responsibility to take the good news of the gospel to everyone in our sphere of influence, to tell people about the loving and merciful God who has made a way for them to be reconciled back to him. And while it's not in our wheelhouse to save them, it is in our ability to tell them who can, to tell them about Jesus your kids, your spouse, your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your neighbors, these are all people who God has placed in your proximity as a gracious means of their hearing the gospel, repenting and having the gift of eternal life instead of the terrible fate of eternal death. Hell is a reminder to us, church, of the urgency of our mission. Let's not forget about that. As we ponder the reality of hell, it should break our hearts to consider our fellow image bearers rejecting the love of God. And we should allow that to fuel us to be faithful in sharing the truth about Jesus with them. To quote Charles Spurgeon, he says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. The knowledge of hell prior to death is God's gracious plea with sinful men not to go there. Church, it's our responsibility to echo that plea to the ends of the earth. Because we know, we know, hell is not, this is not a simplistic matter. Hell is not simply the place where bad people go and we're all just good people because we're in here in church on Sunday. No. We are all bad apart from Christ. And heaven is a place where bad people can go if they will repent of their sin and trust the grace of God in Christ by faith. As Christians, we are simply people who know that it is appointed to man once to die and then to face judgment. But there is a way to not have to be condemned by God's judgment. The way is Jesus. I'm saying this as much to myself as to you. Church, let's not neglect to share Jesus with all of the others in our lives who so desperately need him, just like we do.
Hell should be a strong motivator to that end. And lastly, if you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, my my point to you is exactly the same. The knowledge of hell prior to death is God's gracious plea with you not to go there. God does not desire for you to go there. He loves you, and his offer of eternal life, it stands today. Through the prophet Isaiah, listen to the words of God to you today. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways as your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friend, God is waiting to be gracious to you. He's waiting to be gracious to you. He has told you about the misery of hell and his word, and his loving appeal is, Don't go there. Come to him instead. He longs to abundantly pardon your sin. And the proof is on the cross where Jesus hung on your behalf that you might escape the awful fate of hell. If hell wasn't real, Jesus did not need to hang on the cross. The cross never needed to happen if hell is not real. And so the cross of Christ stands in history as a beacon, both of the severity of hell and how much God loved you. That you might not wind up there. Won't you trust him? Won't you trust him? You don't have to go to hell. You can come to Jesus and have eternal life instead without price because Jesus already paid the price. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable. He says there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, 
was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So, hell is real, and it's more terrible than we have words for. But it only exists for those who reject the love and mercy of God. If you desire, if you desire the love and mercy of God, look to the parable of the prodigal son. Don't rehearse your speech another day, friend, about where you've been or what you've done. God already knows those things. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. But God is a loving father who runs to embrace his sons and daughters who know that they have sinned, who repent, and who come home to him. So, come home. Come home. God the Father desires to clothe you with his grace. And we all, as the church, want to celebrate that you were lost on a trajectory towards hell, but now you've been found and you're safe in the love and the mercy of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, this is, this is the hardest doctrine. This is the hardest doctrine. I, I don't know of a more difficult doctrine in your word, a more difficult truth in your word than the one of hell, the reality of hell that's necessitated, God, by your love and your mercy that you have extended freely to mankind. God, what other... What other thing could there be that would happen for those who, who reject you, who reject your love? We see in your word, hell must exist so that there's another way. But Father, I just pray for the men and women in this room, if there's anybody here who hasn't trusted in Christ yet, that they would not choose to go that way, but they would choose to go the way of Christ, to come home to you, to their heavenly Father, and receive the love and mercy and grace that you have to offer in the gospel. And Father, for those who are believers in this room already, as many of us, Father, I pray that the doctrine of hell would motivate us to go and to take the gospel to the people in our lives who we see who, who need it. God, how much must we hate someone if we're unwilling to tell them the good news of how they can escape hell and how they can be saved by Christ, how they can have a relationship with you restored forever. Would that be how we're motivated today, God? Not into fear or manipulation or anything like that, but would we genuinely look at the doctrine of hell and be motivated to do what's right, to take the gospel to the world? We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.